Oh, hi. It's Crystal here, and welcome to The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities through the pop culture and real-life moments that shaped us. How's it going, babies? Welcome back to another week. I am just waking up in California, and uh, I'm feeling tired and good. Just done a run of shows in San Diego and Palm Springs over the weekend, and I'm now in L.A., couple days off and I'm gearing up for more shows, more drag, more glamour, more delusion. So if you happen to be in Los Angeles, check out my website. I've got, I think, five or six more dates over the next two weeks. And who knows, you might just see me smear some chocolate frosting on people's faces in the name of art and getting a dollar bill tip. All my upcoming dates are on my website, crystalwillseeyounow.com. And I'm back in the UK in two weeks with lots of stuff coming up in the UK. I'm in London for my night Mimi's on March 18th. I'm in Bedford. I'm going to be in New York. Yeah, so just check out my website. I'd love to see you in the show. My guest this week is singer and author and former drag artiste Tom Rasmussen, who uh, I absolutely adore. This conversation is so funny. They are so witty and interesting and thoughtful. Um, And they're just so, so great. After we recorded this episode, I actually had them come perform for Mimi's uh, on Halloween. So if you happen to be at that show with, you know, the 1,600 other people who were there, no big deal, then you will have seen them perform. They're amazing. Their voice is so dreamy, and they're writing the most amazing queer bangers, like high-energy club stuff with the most beautiful voice. So definitely go check out their music. I really recommend the song Dysphoria. And yeah, you're going to love this conversation. I can't wait for you to listen to it. And before we get into it, please just remember to follow the podcast, Give me a comment on Instagram, share something to your stories if you like the episode, and please also DM me. I'd love to hear some of the things that made you queer. There's only two more episodes of this season, so I'm going to be reading those out at the end of the next couple of episodes. So drop me a DM and let me know some of the things that made you queer. I'd love to hear it. Okay, let's get on with this week's episode on Tom Rasmussen. Okay, my guest this week is prolific across genres. They are an author with two incredible books and a regular column for Vogue. They are a musician, two singles released this year and more music coming. And they're even a former drag queen. They used to be called Crystal until holding a public funeral for the character. And frankly, I'm just happy to have one less crystal in the world, to be honest. Uh, but whatever the genre, everything they produce is beautiful, inspiring, hilarious, and brilliant. And I am truly excited to be welcoming to the podcast, Tom Rasmussen. Oh, that was such a good pronunciation, and you did take people like a hundred times. <laughs> was that okay? It was beautiful. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you one so much. Nemesis, now friend. Uh, exactly. Uh, no, totally. It's great that you finally conceded 
the name to me. I think it was about time, yeah. and I think that means yeah. I win. I think that means you absolutely win. I think, I think you know what, I'm, maybe I'm happy for you to win this race. Uh, this race. I, think, I think in the long run, someone who's quit drag has won. <laughs> well, that, I mean, let's, we should get into that, shouldn't we? <laughs> Before we get into any of it, Tom, start by telling me how you identify and what your pronouns are. Identify as they, them. I'm, I'm toying a lot with different pronouns at the moment, but I've been sort of definitely identifying and working with they, them for a really long time now. Um, so yeah, let's go for they, them today. And how do I identify? I identify as, as someone who's really currently trying to get back into nature. <laughs> oh my Perfect. God. Thank you. I love that. All right. <laughs> Wait, what are your pronouns and how do you identify? Um, I go with, I take anything. Mm-hmm. He, him today, because I'm not in drag. She, her in drag. They, them. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty flexible, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I'm queer slash gay. Okay, that's fun. Yeah. That's really nice. And I also identify as someone who's very warm right now bit sticky mm. yeah where are you are you in london yeah yeah yeah, um, I, yeah. honey um honey. so uh, first thing i think we need to talk about is the fact that you just got married which i only i've just <laughs> noticed and seen and uh, wow thank you for making the time so immediately after the nuptials uh, no no we had what they call in like tacky wedding land a pre-moon we didn't call it oh uh, okay but we went we, we had a trip away before so when that it was, I will say it was quite like we got married on Saturday and then on Monday, 9am, I was like back at my desk writing. Wow. I was like, why am I doing this? I, the only way I can describe the feeling post-wedding is like, you know, when you go to, you know, we're not that bothered about weddings. Like we had an amazing time. We like never thought we'd get married. We just did it for loads of fun. We still obviously believe deeply that like there are much, there is much more to queer rights than marriage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and children and like love is love and all that boring, like boring ineffective crap. But the point is like, we just wanted to, and it was fucking so fun. And honestly, I would really recommend it. Not because of the institution at all, but because it was joyful. Wait, are you married? I am. Yeah. And I feel, yes. I feel the exact same way as you. Yeah. I was never particularly bothered about getting married and my partner was more interested in it. And I kind of like hummed and hawed about it for a long time because I didn't really see the right. the point in what you've just described in all of that. Right. But it was so fun. It was so fun. And like, I highly recommend getting all of your friends together in one place and having a really fun time together. Yeah. And it's incredibly yeah. self-indulgent, but like, don't we all deserve a bit of indulgence sometimes? And in a way, it was self-indulgent, but actually in a way, I think, okay, one of the things I've been thinking a lot, I mean, it only happens Saturday, so check back in with me next week or in a year. <laughs> like when we're divorced, but like, basically I wrote a book about this last year. I released a book about this and we'll probably go on to it, but we're going there now. I released a book in July last year called First Comes Love. And it's actually about, about to come out in paperback. And it was asking this question of like, why I, I grew up really wanting to get married. And then I moved to London and met a bunch of queer people and realized how harmful the history of marriage has been to our conception of, of our ideas of love. And also how harmful in general, the history of marriage is. Uh, and marriages and sort of what a pressurized system it is and how exclusionary it is and how the whole thing really can only function because of its basis in injustice. And it's a good book. I'm really, really genuinely proud of it. And I interviewed hundreds of people, thousands of hours of interviews about 
divorce, about marrying ghosts, about marrying objects, about polyamory, about open marriages, about, you know, about, you know, class and religion. I interviewed the Westboro Baptist Church. It was amazing. And I had a really, I really enjoyed it. And I realised at the very end, and my, my want was to go in and like do a hard case as to why marriage is trash. Mm-hmm. And I realised at the end, like, I don't necessarily think that. I don't think anything about it. But what I do think is really wonderful is like a promise. And like, I don't mean a promise to be together forever, but I mean like whatever that promise might be for us, the promise was to really work hard to change together. And I think like, I don't know. So really, I think the day with all that in mind and all this thought that we both put into it, because we discussed it as I was writing the book, it genuinely did feel like we were reclaiming something. And I know that's probably just what it feels like and isn't true. But so often we talk of reclamations, like reclaiming the streets and reclaiming the night. And those are really amazing projects, but they're really hard to do mm-hmm. when the power is not yours. Like I cannot go out now and reclaim the street as a clear person. It is too hard. It like is too violent and it's too hard. But like in a day when it's 280, that was quite a lot of people of my friends and his friends and our family all in one space there to celebrate like a queer union and also wider community. It felt like for a moment, for a day, we could like reclaim an archaic tradition. So actually, it felt like a reclamation and it felt really powerful as a, as a result. So, wow, I really tangented, but you know, you got me on here. It is the Tuesday after I got married. It's very <laughs> much in my head. We can move on. But no, that... that was that was beautiful. That really that was really touching. Really, really touching. And actually, this is a different tangent, but what you just said about reclaiming the streets, it's almost like marriage for queer people is a bit like pride is to reclaiming the streets like maybe there isn't that one single that power within one one person but there is something about collective action and there still can be power in something that can be otherwise corporatized or commercialized and there's still something important about doing it oh i i think that completely i mean like i'm sure you and i both have our feelings about pride especially as like once again this year i was like walking around (laughs) going to work i mean like only the queers work pride. We only, like, actually, it's just such a hard, it's just such hard work, the day itself. But there is something still that moves me deeply about people totally reclaiming the streets. Uh-huh. And I mean, lest we forget, like, obviously, Saturday, it was also Trans Pride. Uh-huh. I, we sent the invites out way before the day of Trans Pride was announced, which was such a shame. But, you know, Saturday, that was a reclamation of the streets. You know what I mean? Right. And, like, yeah, definitely. And meanwhile, you're being transphobic by having a wedding on that day. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I went to a wedding, a straight wedding, the summer before COVID on the day of Pride in London. And that was incredibly. That, yeah. I've, a I, relief. Still haven't, I haven't, no, I haven't forgiven that couple, to be honest with you. Obsessed. <laughs> so, Obsessed. Be prepared yeah. for some friends to really hold a grudge. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> Moving on. So. Tom, shall we get into the things that made you queer? Yeah. Every week, my guest brings a person, a place, an album or song, a film or TV series, and a wild card that helped them understand or embrace or accept or clarify their queerness. And you've sent me your list, which I absolutely adore. Are you ready to get into it? I am, yeah. Gorgeous. So up first is your person. Um, And you've said your grandma, which... Mm, that's just already so nice. I'm already feeling oh. feelings. Talk to oh. me. Where are we? Set the scene. Well, 
we're in the northwest of England in the 90s. Um, and my grandma lives around the corner from the house I grew up in. And her husband, sort of, my granddad passed away when I was like three. And he was um, very religious, a Methodist minister and preacher. And she was like very much like a, you know, a northern matriarchal housewife mm-hmm. who was like a preacher's wife. And I don't know, I think when he passed, like, she maybe found some sort of unexpected liberation. Mm-hmm. And she, I didn't obviously remember her before that, but she was like so cheeky and so def- like protective of me. Fiercely, because I think in part it began because her obsession was reputation, which I'm obsessed with. It was so camp. Like, we'd drive through town and she'd beep and wave at people and they'd wave back and I'd be like, who's that? And she'd be like, no idea, but, you know, it's always good, it's always good to, you know, to put on a show, she'd say, and all these things. Amazing. You know, and we'd, like, be driving home again. Because I used to get the bus to and from school and then, you know, a bit of a sob story, but I had to stop because I was just getting constantly beat upon on the bus so my grandma would come and pick me up every day at school and she would we'd be drive, driving home and she'd like screech on the main road to a halt and cars would like pile behind her and I was like what are you doing oh my god and she'd be like oh the galleys have got new curtains like, <laughs> like honestly it was just she had such an awareness of her surroundings and such an awareness of aesthetics and like it wasn't necessarily like the aesthetics that you know many would aspire to now but like she was just so, she was, I guess, the first time I'd ever witnessed both, she was the first person in which I'd ever witnessed both, like, yeah, a real, real focus and obsession over, on aesthetics and how she appeared, which to me is in one way very draggy. And then she was also, I guess, my the first person that ever bought me a copy of Vogue. And in that sort of exchange, she very much liked, in a way, she very, very much um, sort of gave her blessing, I guess, mm. to my difference. Because, like, you know, I was like a nine-year-old. It was 1999. And it was mid-Section 28. My granddad was a Methodist preacher. We were in a very working-class town. She was super religious. I was at a Catholic school. No one was gay, in in my knowledge, that we that any of my family knew. And she would, every week, We'd go to church, and on the way to church, she would buy me a copy of Vogue, and I would wow. sit in the front row, and I would read Vogue while everyone else read the Bible, which is so <laughs> cheap. I know, isn't it ridiculous? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And um, she was amazing. So, I don't know. Yeah. She was just the best. So, yeah, I mean, her. And it just and just thing, little things like that, like, you know. So, yeah, and, and it was gender non-conforming in a way, because, you know, she was so expected to be silent and so expected to be as I guess, again, there's many expectations on us all. And like with, with my grandma as a, as a woman up north who, you know, was born in the 20s, I want to say. She, no, the 30s, the 30s. She was, and had always lived there, very working class, and she was would have been expected to be quite silent. And she wasn't. She was so opinionated. She was in control. She controlled everyone. She was manipulative beyond belief, like awful and manipulative. But in that vein, she was, in a way, truly showed me that you don't have to stick to the prescribed mm. limits of what your gender is. And so she's, she sort of inspired me in so many ways that, like, she wouldn't she wouldn't even have processed as an idea. 
But yeah, that's grandma. Wait, it's, who's yours? I always want to know who yours is. Who's Sorry. who's my person? Oh god, yeah. it could be so many people depending on the day. But to know it could be like a a, a David Bowie or a Madonna mm-hmm. uh, if we're going to go down the camp route, or it could be. Mm-hmm. No, no, I'll come back to you. I'll come back to you. Okay. The the beauty of me hosting this podcast is that I don't have to set it all in stone. I can just be flip floppy about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that story is so lovely because it sounds like it so could have easily gone the other way with that relationship as well. And yeah. and the fact that she used kind of her power and influence for good in you is just mm-hmm. so so touching. You were yeah. So she was a bit of a, a refuge for you, it sounds like. She was, yeah. And she, yeah, she was. She was... Were you getting bullied for your queerness as a child? Oh my god, from the moment I stepped out of the fucking womb, yeah, I was ste- I stepped out of the womb. I was actually <laughs> born by C-section. Um, she, <laughs> my bless, bless my mother. Um, yeah, forever, because, you know, in, re- in reception, which is, you know kindergarten or first year or whatever I you know was only friends with girls I was wearing dresses and making everyone call me Pearl from I don't remember the earliest moment possible that I could process being called something and so like from that you know the moment you express queerness is the moment you there are detractors and Mm -hmm. so like whether it was worried teachers or whether it was like never spoken about but parents of like boys from school who'd invite me over for sleepover and then I wouldn't be allowed to go over even though I was like in year two, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just weird stuff like that. And then also obviously classic schoolyard stuff. Um, but my grandma did teach me how to be popular, which it sounds, I'd forgotten now, but like she taught me like not how to be popular, but like she taught, she taught me how to be like nice and funny and fun, I hope. And as a result, I always was friends. I guess what's, what was my saving grace in high school is that I always somehow managed to end up in the popular girl group at primary school and high school. So I had a weird, I had some protection and I was like weirdly had lots of lovely friends and lots and lots of respect from like boys in my year at high school who wouldn't usually mm-hmm. respect someone like me because I was their path to like the hot popular girls, mm-hmm. which sounds so, you know what I mean? And at the same time, obviously there was a lot. So I don't know. It was, it was very mixed. I don't think I could, I don't think I could survive a day now, a day at high school now. Like I've made my world so beautiful and protected. And there's, I only speak to people who want to speak to me mm-hmm. with the respect that I ha- in the ways I want to speak to them. Like I honestly, if you've sent me back to like a, a particularly bad day at high school in terms of harassment and bullying, I do not know how that person survived. It's quite something because now I like, Someone calls me one thing that I would get called 50 times a day at high school by everyone today in, in sincerity. I'm like sh- absolutely shocked. Whereas back then I'd be like, here's a comeback. Mm, fuck you. Mm, makes you hard as a fucking rock. It's like amazing. Wow. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I don't know. That's tragic. And yeah. also lovely that you've managed to build your life in such a way that, you know, <laughs> you've shielded yourself from all of that. I was just going to say that surely you've had those moments where maybe the the words aren't coming, but like, especially as a drag artist, I feel like I'm constantly being put into spaces where the audience mm. isn't necessarily interested in, in the safety that I take for granted. Yeah. And, uh, 
and you're like, oh, suddenly I'm not in a safe space, despite it being my job to be here. Yeah, so bizarre those times. Uh huh. I was thinking about this a lot recently about how like it's our in those spaces. What's ironic is like our job is essentially to show liberation, yes. to show what liberation is, and what we're doing is it's so strange to provide that as a service in those really cynical spaces because they feel really cynical and like we like there are gigs that we love as queers and queens and kings and performers, but there are gigs that I have been to been at with my friends and all, I watch them go on stage, glaze over. And all I see is like dollar signs because it's like, <laughs> you. Go, but it's true. Like you need, you've got to live. You've got it. You, you know, I got it. I just had, you know, fucking sourdough and avocado for my lunch with some lovely gar- like garlic and chili or whatever. Like it sounds quite bougie, but it was quite cheap. But like the point is like, I need, I gotta eat, I gotta have my, I want an, I want an avocado for lunch, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's how because that. <laughs> not, it's not about the avocado. But the point is, like, it's so weird how, like, in order to do that, I don't know, it feels so unliberatory for, for like, me or for you, I don't know about you, but, like, to be in a space like that, it feels, can feel really hard, actually. Yeah. And really. Yeah. Yeah. And it really. can, it, yeah, it can really make you question what you're doing it for. Then you have the really good gig and the pay is crap and and it's suddenly yeah. it's suddenly it's all worth it and it all makes sense. So and you oh, yeah. and it's impossible to know sometimes until the moment you hit the stage. What it is, it is, and and that and that said, mm. also there's no. You're right. There's no rhyme or reason because sometimes, sometimes the gig that we're talking about, the glaze over gig we're talking about. Sometimes I've had the nights of my life at those gigs uh-huh. because, and uh, you know. There's the whole big debate about whether cis women should be allowed, uh, cis women on their Hindus should be allowed into gay male spaces. Uh-huh. And I always find it quite boring, that one, because, like, I was raised by women on Hindus, you know what I mean? They mm-hmm. were the women who fucking raised me. And so, like, I just, I understand about protecting gay spaces. And I, I, I will say I have a very high tolerance for the bullshit of legendary drunk cis women <laughs> but i have what i have is no time ever for cis men yeah. <laughs> ever yeah so to the point where it's become like a like a, a proper intolerance now but anyway yes yeah it's interesting back to your grandma for a sec yeah is she still with us she's not no she passed four years ago mm. and she it's so strange though i i i don't know i don't know if i've dealt with that one right. but one day i will or slowly i think i think you unpack and live with grief in different ways. I mm-hmm. think I don't know. I talk about her like honestly all the time. That's so nice. She would, she'd fucking love it if she yeah. knew I was like doing stuff like this, talking about her. She would be obsessed. Honestly, <laughs> she'd be, she would be obsessed with it. So you know, she uh, a lot of what I do is sort of, I guess, about her or thinking of her and in honor of her. So I don't know. Honestly. Did you did you get yeah. a chance to talk to her about your childhood? This? Yeah. No. 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 I think also a lot of how I grew up was about silence, really. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's in some ways really good and has taught me to be really stoic and really, like, workhorsey. And, wow, I would literally have therapy after this, after this podcast <laughs> record. And no, this is literally, yeah, like, you don't what need we're it. talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I always joke that this podcast is therapy provided by an unlicensed, <laughs> unprofessional. <laughs> okay, this is my dream. My dream is to eventually retrain to be a therapist. Is that yours too? I did. I did briefly start no. retraining, and and then I decided now I'll, I'll be be a drag queen instead. Wait, you started retraining as a as a therapist? Uh huh. I did a year. No. Yeah. How was it? It was it was good. I enjoyed it. 
I like talking to people about their their thoughts and their things, but um, I'm also very self-involved, so it was a kind of clash. <laughs> Do you think, I, sometimes I wonder if to be a therapist, you have to be a bit self-involved. Yeah, maybe. like, you've got to have, like, a good ego-y thing where you're, like, there'll be so many therapists listening to this being like, what are these two fucking idiots talking about? <laughs> but, like, it's that thing of, like, I wonder if you do have to be slightly self-involved because you have to surely feel like you're good enough to, like, save someone. Do you know what I mean? Mm, well, the, the key... They, no, the key to therapy is that they're saving themselves. You're just a, you're just a mirror. You're a reflector. Uh, um, and, and, and I couldn't help but notice you kind of deflected away from that feeling Go on. Uh, to talk about becoming... Uh, talk, talk about therapy. I want to know what... Go on, you oh, don't ask me anything. I'm really... Well, no, you just started to talk about the feelings of, of with your grandmother and how you hadn't necessarily unpacked it, and I'm interested to know where that was going. Well, I don't know. I just... I I don't know. that In my trying to get back to nature, basically, this all, wrap, this all ties into something that I know we were going to talk about, which is sort of the end of drag, my end of drag. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should hang, hang back. But, like, I quit drag last year, and it all... I think the unfurling of my quitting of drag which I had been doing up to then for a decade 11 years actually it, I think it probably started when my grandma passed away and you just start to ask a few questions and then I kept having really 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 bad um panic attacks about dysphoria which I'd never had before I'd never been so dysphoric I couldn't really bear it and I then did a job, a really bleak job, a really bleak corporate job in drag. And it really, really came at a time when I was asking lots of questions about everything. And essentially what I was saying was sort of a lie, basically. It was like a very much like a, it was like a greenwashing lie. And even though I didn't know and I hadn't had a chance to research whether it was true or not, I just knew in my heart that the way it was presented and what I was saying was like literally a lie. Mm to get people to buy something they fucking didn't need. And I get it. We've got to earn our coin and all that stuff that we like a lot, a lot of myself, some of my friends used to say to justify making really unethical choices. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can, there is no ethical choice. Sure. There is no ethical choice to, to make money because essentially, as we all know, there's no ethical consumption under sort of advanced stage capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is this was a particularly bleak job. We're talking over my red line because I was very broke at the time. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't bear it afterwards. I was like, it's almost like I'd killed, I'd killed the, the, the liberation factor mm. was gone for me. I'd killed it. I had like, it was my fault. I'd done it. And I just couldn't imagine drag for me at that time as a space where I was doing it for the reasons I believed I should be doing it. Right. Because what happens was I was getting really good financial offers and really big branded jobs, and they're hard to say no to. And so I sat around in cafes with friends and bitched and moaned about it and bitched and moaned about loads of stuff. And then not that, but like about my own moral red lines, about what it all means and about futurity as a drag performer and how do you survive? And I hate to bring it up, but RuPaul's Drag Race and all those things. And then I was like, I'm just going to quit. I can't be against the people I love, which is the, the community of Queens and Kings. I can't, not that I was sat there bitching about people, I was bitching about myself and, and the changes. And so I was like, oh. And so I think my processing 
I think my grandma taught me to be a drag queen and I think it took me like a four year lag. But I think in a way, I don't know. There was no inspiration left with Crystal. I loved her so much. But I think maybe a bit of it, a big bit of it died when my grandma died. So maybe that's the first thing I'm yet to do. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Strange. I do. I've not said that out loud before. I didn't realize that's how I felt. Maybe I don't. Who knows? Maybe you don't feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. Sounds like it's something that requires a bit more thought, but I think that's really interesting and kind of beautiful sort of tribute to your grandmother as well. If that is, if she's kind of the reason in and the reason out, it's like, it just speaks to her impact on your life. So salute to your grandmother. Yeah, so nice. Thanks for sharing that story. Not at all. Thank you for listening. Let's move on to your next item. Yeah. So up next, we've got your album, which is Madonna, Ray of Light. Speaking mm-hmm. of drag, you're in good company. This is also Detox's album. Oh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think 98% of gays is their album. Gays with taste. Yeah, it's it's it was a moment. It was, it a, was moment a moment for, for all of us. Talk to me, like, I, maybe you're kind of the same age as what you were describing, but I'm interested to know about, like, how your journey of self-discovery kind of transpired, because you obviously knew you were different. You were being told it all the time by the kids at school. Mm. How does this album fit into that journey? But, well, for me, I actually, my entry point to Madonna was actually Confessions on a Dance Floor. Mm-hmm. As in the first time I really, I, you know, everyone knew Madonna, she, you know, by osmosis. But really, when I was old enough to appreciate what she was doing was Confessions, which was a little later. And then I, like, I'd never really been, I'd never really been in a, I, you know how a lot of gays and queers have, like, obsessions? And I have a lot of obsessions now, but I'd never really been... If I'm honest, I probably was sort of living more in my mind as a girl. And, mm-hmm. and and I probably still am. But like as like a girl with all the girls. And then obviously like puberty happened and I re-understood myself. And then I like discovered Madonna. And then I became obsessed with Madonna. And then as, you know, as we, we all have to, it's the right passage. And then I, you know, I used to like camp outside like the Cardiff, whatever the arena was called. You know, and like I, me and my friend Leah, I would do like, we'd do like really shit summer jobs in order to just like save the money in order to be able to like buy like a golden circle ticket for the next Madonna tour. And like, you know, I, I had the best times ever, but anyway, I went back and the second album, I went to HMV and the second album I bought after I'd loved confessions was Ray of Light. And that was like, Oh, this is just, I guess it was the first time I'd realized you can be famous and an artist which is such, seems like such a late thing to realise. <laughs> but, like, to me, Confessions was, like, amazing sort of disco pop, I guess. Stuart Price and such a good job on, like, producing that album and stuff. But, like, that was, like, an artist statement. I don't know. We all know, and I could talk about Ray of Light forever. It was more just, like, it was the first time I realised you could, like, say something, probably, about something with integrity and truth and authenticity and it be, like, incredible to experience that as a as an audience member mm-hmm. and so i think that was probably the beginning of that then obviously ray of light led me to like kate bush to like the real pop art girls mm-hmm. and then i became obsessed with robin when she started to release stuff mm-hmm. and so like 
it's the classic. Quite similar to Detox, actually, probably. Because I know Detox is obsessed with Robin as well. Yes. And I love Detox. I'm obsessed with Detox. Yeah. So <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, Just one big snake eating its tail, all of us. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm definitely, I'm definitely, the mouth eats the ass in that, in that scenario. <laughs> but yeah, and so I think that's it. I don't think it, I used to, and I used to get these CDs and on my headphones, listen to them alone in my bedroom like every teenage girl or teenage gay did. And so that was it. They were really lonely. They were experienced alone, these albums. They weren't experienced together, except some Madonna with my friend Leah. But really the experience of them first time was alone in a headphone. And that's still how I like to listen to music. I like a gig and I like a club, but like if I'm really going to listen to music. I want to be on my own listening to music on headphones because it just, I guess. So yeah, I don't know. That's it. It's not that complex. I don't know what it is. Diva worship, yeah. Re, like again, gen- and I think the reason we diva worship is because of gender nonconformity. Again, it's the way that, like, you know, feminine feminine gay men are pub are punished for femininity. Feminine gay men are told they've done something wrong by being by being feminine, or you know, you know, non-binary femmes the same, or you know, trans women the same, and yet what we get to see in the divas is like women who de- absolutely defy. Absolutely. And draw such power from their femininity. Yep. And it's really, well, like watching Celine Dion do a live performance, even though she's got no taste. You know what I mean? <laughs> like she's my favorite. I've got her signature tattooed on me like three times. She like will bring a tear to my eye because that is just someone who is beyond limit. And yes. so it's kind of amazing. No, that's so nice. I was like, I mean, having read your book, I was expecting to see Celine on this list. Um, I was thinking of you because I recently watched. Alin, have you watched uh, it? <laughs> no, I don't dare. How was it? <laughs> I mean, it was so fawning and so up Celine's ass. You can tell it was made by like a super fan. So it, no. you kind of didn't get any of the grit that you might want. But I still cried like three times. So Shut up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also like. Weirdly, when I'm accessing Celine, I don't want grit. I'm sorry. Uh, fair enough. Grit. I get that. I get that, but you know, it really does. Like, anyway, we're, we're we don't need to get into the the life story of Celine Dion, but I will say, like, watch it because watch it next time you're on a plane because I just I was very captivated, and there's a part where she loses her voice, and the audience starts singing for her, and they they just give her all of the love that she needs, and she's like, I can't go on, and so they sing the rest of the sh- the song for her, and just floods of tears, me on the plane, just sobbing. I'm obsessed. Yeah. I'm obsessed with you. That's yeah. genius. <laughs> but I'm, you're right. I need some movies to watch. I will definitely watch that next, and I'll let you know how it is. And also, speaking of headphones, you mentioned listening to that. I just wanted to shout out your music as well because uh, th- it was yeah. the first time. Just now was the first time I've listened to your song "Fantasy Island Obsession" in the in nice headphones, and it sounds so good. And one, I've realized it's a travesty to be listening to good music on airpods but also yeah. wow there's so much there's even more richness and just what what a tune that is uh, when did you, you when did you realize you could sing oh really a very long like late in my life as in like i always sung and i was always quite annoying like my you know my family would be like shut up you know and all that stuff and like again not another soft story but like where i'm from like no one is a singer mm-hmm. you don't become a singer mm-hmm. you know but I I don't know. I think I realized I could sing on my penultimate Edinburgh show in 2019. 
even though I've been like working as a singer for nearly a decade by that point, or, or nine years by that point, I I realized I could sing then because I came off and I was like, wow, there isn't a note, or like even when the notes were wrong, I could harness the emotion. And I think like, you know, the real one is to be like a good interpreter of song, isn't it? And so that's what I want to be. I don't know. I don't know. I'm still realizing and saying, I don't fucking know. That's too hard a question. Mm-hmm. Need some therapy on that, maybe. <laughs> or maybe I or maybe I don't. I just need to get a grip. But I know I can move people with my voice. Now, yeah. But I don't It's incredible. You know, well, that's very kind. Thank you. But but with the music, the music's been the best the most that that basically came after I killed Crystal. Yeah. It was happening at the same time. And I really wanted to put a stop to talking about this one very particular violent experience I'd, I'd lived through that I'd, I've written about in everywhere. I talked about it on stage. Mm-hmm. I've talked about it in books. I have talked about it in podcasts. And I was like, I'm turning 30. I'm ending a chapter of my life. I need to move forward. I need to not be weighed down. I need to not be scared of going onto the street and being attacked again. And I was like, this is the final check. This is the, and I like, gave myself that aim this is the, this album which comes out in the in sort of in the next three months this album is the last time i'm ever gonna make art that i release about being about about the violence i've experienced as a queer person maybe not ever <laughs> but like these ones my young ones mm-hmm. because i've lived with and in violence for so long and it's so depressing i just can't anymore i can't make my whole identity and my whole output the discussion of the violence I've experienced. Right. Because I'm 30 now and I need to be able to live elsewhere. So this record is about that violence, but also about escaping that violence and, 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 and seeking and enacting revenge. Because like something we don't get to do as queer people is talk about the revenge. Uh-huh. We wish we could. <laughs> but seriously, like, <laughs> but too, like, our jo- there's a song on it that might not make the album called Seth, which is all about transition. And it's all about being a woman called Seth who murders and breaks the necks of men. And like, in that really enacts like very visceral, physical, bloody violence. Because like, you know, I have been made to bleed honestly countless times by men in my high school and on the street and after gigs and every queer person I know has. And so why don't I get to talk publicly about how I want to fucking enact mm-hmm. revenge? And then mm-hmm. after that comes sort of release and ultimate peace, I guess. And that's the record. Lol. I, <laughs> I mean, I do really relate to that though, because I think that's half of what I'm doing with drag or like when I, I, when I love drag, it's because I feel like I'm a superhero and I've got a fucking angle grinder and I'm here to chop yes. off all the dicks of everyone I hate. So good. So good, Crystal. Oh my God. Yes, that's the truth. And I mean, obviously half like that's sometimes with drag, but I, t- I definitely relate. And I think lots of people relate. Um, but also like I, I came to your gig a couple of weeks ago and it, it was fabulous hearing lots of music from the album. And my takeaway from it was joy and release. And that's how I left feeling so excited oh, about like the possibilities of being liberated. That's that was the message I took from your show. So it sounds like nice. I, I don't know how it felt writing it, but it feels no, no. That, that feels like a real if that's the message that people are getting from it. That's kind of like you saying I am done with this chapter in a way. Yeah, that's the real one. The one is in the end that final those final two songs that I sung. They are about, there's one called Fucking Look At Me, which is just, 
Thank you. Which is just about, it, it was like, I was like on, you know, I used to wear much more like, you know, very visibly non-conforming clothes than I do now. And I, it's about being on the tube and just being like, you know what? If you're going to look at me out the corner of your fucking head, fucking look at me. And then drawing power from that. And actually like, we're so often told, which is true. A lot of the queer people I know don't dress up for anyone else. But sometimes I dress up for other people to look at me. Sometimes I love that. And mm-hmm. why shouldn't I? Like mm-hmm. the world is so boring and people wear the most boring outfits and people look the most bored they've ever fucking looked. And I'm like, look at me, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Wish you could be me. And when I see a fucking legendary queer on the street, like walking or working and I'm in some duddy outfit because I decided not to dress up that day, I feel like enwrapped with joy for this person. And I'm like, oh my God, the, there is possibility and potential in the world. So look at me fucking look at me and so that's what that's about i love it anyway thank you thanks it really means a lot that you like it because it's scary you know what it's like putting out like art that's yours it's really scary i love that about your drag i feel like yes your performances your performances are very particularly very unique and very very yeah just brilliant Mm, you're sweet thanks no i mean it it's cool well and with that mutual admiration let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of the things that made Tom Rasmussen queer. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Holmes. And I'm Matt McConkie. And we are the hosts of Homophilia, the podcast where we talk to awesome LGBTQ plus people about the pop culture that they are consuming and loving and the love lives that they are leading. The conversations that we wish we had had access to when we were growing up. The the conversations that we would like to eavesdrop on now. But we have them with the coolest people in the world. Like who, Matt? Sir Andy Cohen himself. What? Michael Patrick King, Tig Notaro, Alan Cumming, Jinx, Monsoon, and Vendela Kremp. Countless queens from the Drag Race universe. We're asking all of them about the pop culture milestones that shaped them as queer people. And more importantly, who they're having sex with. There you go. It's the queer conversation they don't want you to have. We're having it on Homophilia every week on the World of Wonder Network. Tune in. Listen to Homophilia on the WOW Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a world full of straight people, aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. And we are back with Tom Rasmussen and the things that made them queer. Up next, Tom, we have your film or TV series. And you've called it a cliche, but we're going to do it. We're going into the sex in the city of it all. And I couldn't help but wonder, why did you choose this? Well, I wanted to this. I wanted to say Buffy. I wanted to say Death Becomes Her, and I and I wanted to say Sex and the City. And the one I wanted to say least was Sex and the City, actually, because it's the least cool and the least chic. And everyone's like, oh, they're all such like capitalist psychopath narcissist freaks." And relatable, like, relatable. But that's me, isn't it? But like, I have. To, if if we're talking about what made me queer. When I was watching Buffy, I didn't realize there was so much queer subtext, actually. Mm-hmm. And what Buffy did for me was sort of. I don't know, that was different than queer. That that sort of taught me taught me about who's allowed to be a superhero, I guess. And Death Becomes Her 
that's a whole different thing, I guess. That's, I just didn't want to say that because I'm sure so many people have said that on this podcast. Not yet, but not yet. But I, I see why. And I think I can see where the connections of Sex and the City are going to come in. And I think it, I think it's a perfect fit for you. And you know what? You just need to let go of that shame because that's what oh, we're really stop. here to do. <laughs> Embrace the cringe. Of, this is your year of therapy talking, your <laughs> therapy training talking. I just, I think if I'm honest, I grew up terminally desexualized and quite sexually lonely in those, in those like, before I lost my virginity at 15 and then became a complete bottom slut pig. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, and again, I've transitioned since then. I'm many, I'm many more things than that now. <laughs> also, shout out to the girls who still are the bottom slut pigs. We stan you. And also, I can be on the right night. But the point is, um, the point is, I was really lonely. And then there was a phase in my teen years from maybe like 12 to 15, where all my best girlfriends who made me not lonely, all my best girlfriends started getting boyfriends. And while they got boyfriends and actually did the love thing, I mapped my entire internal life onto four women in New York. And <laughs> I learned everything that I wasn't going to learn about love from these people. And it really fucked me up as well, because like the early relationships I had in my life were like all held to some absolutely chaotic sex and city standard of like, mm-hmm. you know, just tell me I'm the one. And like, you know, maybe like some, you know, women aren't meant to be tamed. And then I was like walking past a horse. It was like shaking its mane and all that shit. And, like, so the point- <laughs> So the point is, like, yeah, fuck it. I don't know. It just, a lot of my want back then also was to escape my life and to be somewhere doing something extraordinary. And something to me back then that seemed extraordinary was to live in New York and own expensive shoes because I lived in Lancaster and didn't, and had like two pairs of shoes. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And like Mm -hmm. talk about men and talk about nothing else because nothing else is important. And so really it made me quit because it taught me it probably Asp- aspiration. Yes, but now what's ironic is I think like <laughs> I aspire to none of those things. But that's maybe because I am a sex and relationships columnist at American Vogue, and so <laughs> I have I, I I have nothing, and I have some really nice shoes. In yeah, my closet, and you've so lived maybe, in New York, correct? And I've lived in New York, yes. <laughs> and so maybe I, it's no longer aspirational because I've done it all, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. except. <laughs> There's a few things I've done that I've not done, but yes, yes, exactly. And so, I don't know. It's it's a hard one. It, this is such it's such an interesting concept. This because it's hard sometimes to know why something made you quit. Like, and I know I know it's a very much a loose title. Like, of course, nothing made us quit. But you're talking about our cultural, mm-hmm. the way we understand ourselves culturally as queer people, and it's so ironic how nothing I've chosen on my list is a queer person or queer. Like it's actually so weird, and actually, it's not—it's not weird. It's just—it's just true, and it says a lot about our generation. Yeah, and it's—you know—I think that will change. And I—I I think if I did this podcast in twenty years, people would have queer Which things. You should do, uh huh, because that would be very interesting. But yes. go on, sorry. Yes, and I think people would have queer things on their list because we now live in a world where queerness has representation and lots of different kinds mm. of representation. So, mm. but typically. Wow. Typically, people I interview—I know, right—but typically, people yeah. I interview don't have queer things on their list. So, wow, God, you're not it's alone. Amazing. And it's amazing that what's also amazing about that, and I love being trans, and I love being gay, and I love being queer. What's so amazing 
is that we still have such a rich culture. Like we've always had such a rich culture and it's, and it, it's amazing. I, I'm continually baffled and absolutely like in awe of some, our... Yeah, definitely. And sometimes I think, oh, what happens if we start seeing ourselves represented? Does that dilute the culture? Do we stop becoming, do we lose our wit? Do we lose our irony? Do we lose our, mm. does our cynicism make us what we are? I don't know. That's interesting. And like, is that a net positive? I'm sure that it is. But I wonder what the changes that we don't necessarily see will be. I guess, yeah, that's so interesting. I think about that too. I wonder if I'm what if I hadn't survived all of that bullying we were talking about earlier, who would I be? And mm-hmm. would I be, I don't know. If you'd had representation, would you still be in Lancaster, you know, happy? But in, but a, then, in a different way. If I, right. And if I was in Lancaster happy, then I'd be happy. Yeah. Because I would be happy wherever yeah. I was, right? So in a way, I guess, I guess the hope is with more representation, what you have is more options. Mm-hmm. The thing is, for me growing up, the moment I came out as gay, and it wasn't when I realized I was gay, that was a few years before when I came out as gay, it was the moment I, I, the whole future of mine died in front of my eyes, which was staying there and having children, which is what most of my friends have done. And I love going back. And I think I have moments, very infrequent now, but now I'm getting older, I have moments where I'm like, maybe I would go back. Because like, it's so strange, and I know this is such an experience of any, I guess, what do they call them, cultural or economic migrant, but, you know, I don't feel fully at home in London because people don't understand what it means. Because why would they? Mm-hmm. To be culturally Northern, to be... Well, a lot of people understand what it's like to be from a working-class background, but, like, to be from a working-class background up North. And when I go home, people don't understand what it's like to be queer mm-hmm. in the way that I am. And so it's weird to not belong feel like you belong to one place or another. The whole thing, the, the way to do it is to really be rich enough to have a house in both places. Yes. Nah, but yes. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm nearly at the bottom of my overdraft. At the moment, so <laughs> it's not looking like me. <laughs> but you've got some nice shoes. I've got some gorgeous <laughs> shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I think it's, I think that actually segues us nicely to your next item, which is your wild card. And it's talking about, moving to London and the house that that was and yeah. and that experience. So let's move, let's move there. Yeah. I mean, I'm, so I moved to, I, 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 I moved to London in 2013 and I moved into a warehouse in, on the commercial road and it was called Wally Lodge because it was a god property guardianship, absolute state. And basically the first night that the person who got it, my friend Hattie Carmen, who is amazing, who I'm in a band with and, has been one of my, I'm writing a musical with, and, you know, we've been, like, the longest-term creative collaborators. She had found this place, moved in alone, and on the first night she was there, in the middle of the night, a radiator fell off the wall and terrified her on the back. It said Wally Lodge, and she was like, oh, this is Wally Lodge. So anyway, it was Wally Lodge, it became Wally, and we've lived, we lived together as a seven, a group of seven, and more or less. Some people moved in, some moved out, and across four different houses across London, sort of starting in right in East London, moving over a little bit further east, then to Deptford and then to Forest Hill. And they've always been these very strange, weird houses that are like office blocks that are like full of like, you know, black mould, but also like massive spaces to have parties in and stuff. And so 
I don't know. It, yeah, that that made me that totally made me queer. Before that, I wasn't using the word queer. Mm-hmm. So if you if you want to be like probably definitive about it, I wasn't even didn't even know there was a word queer that I could use that was for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it taught me to be everything I am probably that I that a lot of things I am that I love, which is like. It taught me about community. It taught me about direct action activism. It taught me about resistance. It taught me about superstructures and the state and all the things that I really, that my central, like the, the politics that I hold really taught me about socialism, the politics that I hold genuine, that I don't really talk about that much in public, but that I, I try to enact in my daily life, I guess, even though I'm here talking about shoes and moving to New York. <laughs> when did the gender of it all kind of crystallize for you? Oh God, I can't believe I used that word. I love it. Um, <laughs> if um, I can't in this space, then when can I? <laughs> when can you? She's dead and gone for me now, darling. It doesn't yeah, trigger me I'm anymore. Great. Just you. <laughs> Just, <me. laughs> Just you. <laughs> um, no, no, no. She's, it's, um, when did the gender of it all start? The they theming. Yeah, well, you've you've discussed transitioning a bit here and there. And like, I don't know, how did you figure that out? Was that part of your... London time or mm-hmm. I mean I will be I've always been super femme and I just never knew there was a word for it and I will be maybe uh, what's the year this year 2022 I think I'll be seven years of they them in August um which is so silly because really if I if my beliefs in, in it sort of means nothing I guess it means everything to me and it also means nothing mm-hmm. because you know, my understanding of gender is just so much wider than a name for it, mm-hmm. you know, but like the gender of it all b- did begin then. But I remember saying, I remember sitting in that house around a, the central table in 2013, late night being like, there's, there's something that I am and I don't know what it is. And I'm not a woman and I'm not a man. And I don't know what it is. And none of us knew the word, mm-hmm. and even though the word was definitely there. None of us, there were seven queers in that house, all of us on the scene, actively working and actively gigging and actively clubbing and sleeping with queers and being the queerest you could be you know we didn't have a washing machine there's no queerer than that and like <laughs> you know and like i we there was literally no word for it it's so nuts so like yeah seven years but like a long time yeah a long time same for us all though same for so many i don't know many i really don't but this is my circle i don't know many gender conforming people right and do you know, uh, how did you find out the language? Do you remember? Yeah, because I interviewed, I, when, I, when I, went, I started writing, and then I started writing for ID, the first publication to ever pay me, or with shout out ID, and I interviewed uh, Y Kin, um, who has, was going by a they-them pronoun then, and still is, I think, and they were telling me about it, and I was supposed to be interviewing them about an art show they were doing at, um, oh, what's it called? That really cool gallery back in the day. I think it's something Italia. Something Italia. Um, and I, they were saying, oh, I use they, them pronouns. And I just kept asking them about it. I was like, what's that? <laughs> oh my God. And they must have been so like, fuck. I was like, <laughs> how does it feel? What does it mean? What do you do when like people say something to you that's not your, that's not that pronoun? And I probably misgendered them a ton. And they were really, really gracious and sweet because they are very kind. And yeah, and and then after that, I started talking with some friends about it. Then I was like, I'm going to try it. And then I did. And it's such a no-brainer now. 
But right. I think I, I'm, I'm definitely feeling more they, she now. And so I'm working that out. But we'll see. That's not official yet. Mm-hmm. We'll see. And how, but yeah. how did it go when you started asking people to use they, them pronouns? What was that like? Fine. I mean, people were and still are quite... No. There was the whole first year where everyone was like... Some people got it straight away. Mm-hmm. And then there was the first sort of year where everyone was like, oh, I'm going to get it wrong all the time. <laughs> Especially mm-hmm. my cis friends and my heterosexual friends. But that's fine. You know, you, you understand them trying. And all you eventually realise that all you want is them to try. Because, like, we, I get my pronoun wrong sometimes, still. Right. After all these years, I get my best friend's pronouns wrong sometimes, still, after all these years. Because it's years of cu- uh, cultural programming, you know, all that. But you move on. You work hard to try and DIY yourself and all that. And now it's fine. My parents still, still in and out. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, they'll often say things like, oh, you know, your brother's on the phone. He's a they. It's really funny. <laughs> it re- I, you know, I know I just misgendered myself, TW, but like, it's really funny to me because also like getting up too upset about that is a waste of my time because mm-hmm. my mother now, after years of us working out our relationship, adores me mm-hmm. and does so much for me and and sees me way beyond a gender marker. And so I wish she would get it right all the time. She gets it right a lot. But when she doesn't, I also am like, you're a 63-year-old yeah woman who's had a very different experience to me and yeah. i'm obsessed with her so she gets a pass moves. she gets a pass ish yeah yeah um yeah she was at your show wasn't she she was not at this show oh. that you were at oh, but okay. she has been did you ever see crystal uh i don't think i ever did see you live what i know i've seen like i've seen videos of performances i don't think i ever actually saw a show Wow! No, 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 kidding. That's totally fine. <laughs> she, oh, she was great while she lived. She was great while she lived. But whatever. And I mean, you know, you once you see one, you see them all, and you darling. Mm. You know what I mean? mm. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, no, she wasn't. But she, I probably talked about her because I talk about her on I think, stage. A lot. I think that's what I'm remembering. That'll be it. Um... Well, thank you for sharing that story about about your London life. Mm. Last item. You ready? Yeah. Okay, so final item is your place, and you have said a drag dressing room, and you've said you, yeah. you want real queer. That's where it is. I love that. I yeah. love that. It, it is. It was in the house I just moved out of in Forest Hill. I just moved out of Wally, right? And just in with my husband. husband. Lol, it's <laughs> so funny. It's actually hilarious and so silly. <laughs> But I just moved in with my partner and, well, in January, and our dog. But there in that house, downstairs, off the living room, it's like this tiny room that has a giant hole in the wall that it just honestly peers into blackness and we have no idea where it goes. <laughs> and in there is, is there is how many drug performers? There's seven of us in that house. And of them, there are five drag performers. Oh my God. And, and then one set designer and one music producer. And so it's the amalgamation of everyone's crap, but it's weirdly perfectly organized. So like in one corner, it's like, and it really reflects all our personalities. Like one of the queens is a queen called Dina Lux, who you will know. Yes. And she famously wears like a belt and a bra Uh and that's it. And so like, there's all her drag, which is like six coat hangers of like lingerie (laughs) and like a perfect wig. And it's all perfectly done. And like a Louboutin. (laughs) And then there's like my partner's drag, which is like rhinestone 
country bumpkin. Her whole thing is that she's like, I mean, she doesn't do it as much anymore, but like her whole thing is that she's like a, be- a beautiful country queen who's actually like a violent murder cult leader. Uh-huh. That's the vibe. Uh-huh. Um, and so there's all that vibe there. There's like that and then like, you know, like a severed head. And then there's like my stuff, which is like really bad fake fur and like Balenciaga copy that I got friends who can sew to copy all that stinks because I probably gig used to gig the most of everyone. So I would like gig, 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 never wash them out uh-huh. because it was I'm just covering. So just, the, and then there's like, you know, the craziest bits of set. It's just kind of an amazing cave. And like, I can, I always used to think like if young me walked in here and was like, some of this, this is you and where you live, I would have, I broke down crying. It's just like my grandma had a scarf drawer when we were growing up. And I remember it was like scarves, like beautiful, you know, the scarves that like ladies wear, which is like chiffon and like mm-hmm. silky. And then costume jewelry, but really shit costume jewelry. And then perfume, all in a drawer. It was all her, like, sinful items, probably. And in there, I used to, like, go upstairs and be so excited. And I used to, like, put the scarf on this brace and perfume. And it was, like, a giant... That room is... And it's still there. And we keep stuff there. And we go back there. It's a giant version of that. And it just... It's a feeling. Yeah. It's amazing. I don't know. It's like a full manifestation, again, of those things you were experiencing as a child. Yeah, exactly. It's quite something. It's it's nice. Things go. F- I think I've realised since you're turning thirty, my Saturn return. Lol. I do think I'm. I do realise that like things do go in a circle, and it's nice. Yeah. Like if you look for it, some things don't go in a fucking cir- circle, obviously. And a circle is simply a made up shape, but things. <laughs> I don't know. Things return. It's when you look back on your life, and I'm not very sentimental, but it's nice to do things like this because I'm like, oh. Things are in a circle. Uh-huh. And that feels nice, and think the loop closes, and I don't know. In a loop closing, you kind of forgive yourself for something that you feel like you did wrong. That you never yes. did wrong. I don't know. You know. Yes. Yeah. That's so beautiful, and that's exactly. I think what drag is again for me mm. when when it's good is is me closing the loop. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, and that is drag. I'll say I've not yet found since quitting drag. I've not yet found a place where the loop closes so frequently and so beautifully when it closes. Drag. I miss it all the time. I'm glad I did it for now. But there's nothing like drag still, I think. What was that like when you quit? You know, how does how does your career move forward? How do you still scratch those itches? I still perform and I'm realizing that, you know, all performances drag in some way. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a shame that those people who perform who never did drag will never understand that feeling. Even though you do have a lot of perform, you know, you have the, you know, the I am Sasha Fierce and like Joe Calderon, I guess that is literally a drag character. But you have a lot of the sort of alter ego-y type pop, pop stars. But like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how it goes forward yet. I am, um, I don't know. One thing that I will say, which I felt was very unjust really quickly was, I performed at a festival recently and it was me as me and other singer artists and other uh, like queers and queens like performing and dancing, et cetera, et cetera. And the people who worked the hardest, because we always do, were the queens and the queers and the kings. They were basically in every number. They were working so hard. 
They arrived earlier than everyone to get ready. They were rehearsing backstage because most eye, most the most judgmental eyes will be on them. And they probably weren't afforded the most rehearsal time because of budgets. Mm-hmm. And then the people who get looked at in the eye is everyone but the drag performer. And, and including me. And I felt it so palpably. And it was something that I've said and thought for so long about drag. In 2019, I did the Edinburgh Fringe and I was before me and after me were two. I was in like a really nice venue. Before me and after me was like a really, both really, really straight male comedians whose whole thing was like gag count where they'd be up and they'd be a joke, gag, joke, gag, joke, gag, topper. Big joke that encapsulates all those jokes. Move on to next section about Mm -hmm. being a dad. And then about, I don't know, probably trans women because loads of fucking Mm -hmm. comedians at the moment are transposed. But anyway, the point being, that would get seen as a like really skilled show to construct a comedy show like that. Comedians or theatre makers, and they are really skilled things. But when people would come to a show like mine or a drag show, people are like, oh, it's only a drag show. It's a drag Mm -hmm. show. Oh, it's a drag show. Mm -hmm. And yet expect like the highest skill in makeup, the highest skill in, for me, singing, the highest skill in comedy. And I was doing that. I was making people laugh, genuinely cry, get up on their feet, like bust some shames and worries that they had about themselves and like do that all while giving incredible narrative and perfect face and amazing outfits and costume changes and, you know, whatever, wig reveals and an angle grinder. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And yet it's still seen as like, a, I guess, in a way, I don't know what it is. Frivolous. Frivolous and low skill. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, like, I've been backstage, you have been backstage too, with so many performers of so many different types. And the most skilled by far and the most talented lies with the drag community every time. The most dedicated, the hardest working, the most resilient, the most quick, all the things. And I'm so lucky that I did it for all those years and I will do it again. It just was... I just wanted to wake up the dead limb that was my sort of performance self because I'd just got into such a rhythm mm-hmm. of going, doing the gig and coming home. And like, now nah, I wanted to, I wanted to kill it, cut, cut it off and let it regrow in some other form, basically. So, yeah. I love that. And it's nice to hear like the flip side of, because obviously earlier you talked about how it was also soul destroying and it felt like it was, uh, you were crossing a line in terms of your morals with it. And it's it's like, mm. it's both of those things are true. And it's like, it's the best and it's the worst. Yeah. And I think, yeah. to be honest, I think you got out at a good time. <laughs> I think you're leading the way in, in a new vanguard of cool. And it's like a post-drag world. And Maybe, but I did say, someone did say something to me recently. I mean, you, you know, you're amazing and you know it better. You know the world better than I do. But someone did say something to me recently, which was like, in a way, it feels like the scene at the moment is sort of back where it was when we all first started, which you have to really seek out. Back in the day, you had to seek out drag. You had to you had to be in the know about where it is. And now you have to seek out drag. And by drag, I mean good drag. That's true. You have to, to know where even the big performers, they, they will do sets that only a very few people know about. And like, it, in a way, it should be a little bit protected, I think. And it should be a little bit secretive and it should be a little bit underground. You know what I mean? And then we sh- they're sure there can be a front-facing, billboard, plastered, rainbow-prided person. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was so many posts after Pride this year about 
how the day Pride Month ends, that's when most, like, that's when this writer who'd written this post felt the most happy and the most pride because they could get, they could go and live pride. They could go and live in the way they want to live, which isn't running between gigs and, uh-huh. you know, smiling for the camera and waving from a bus. It's like, you know, dancing all night with your friends uh, without anyone looking and uh-huh. like doing performances for the community or like in, you know, in like on a freezing December night when people who really believe in drag and really believe in its power want to come. Do you know what I mean? And that's when all, I don't know, there's loads of stuff, but it's interesting. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with drag. It's the most, I think it's the most spotlit subculture at the moment. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens because will it, will what happened to punk happen to drag? Mm-hmm. Will, or will, I think drag will stand the test of time because while punk was resistance, drag has always been about evolution, I think. Yes. Asking a question and moving on and, and pro- progress is the wrong word, but and what if, do you think? I, I think I agree with you. And I think that if drag is about liberation, which I think when it's really good, it is that people will always need that. And it's just maybe whether or not the like parameters of what we're trying to liberate people from change. That's interesting. But then drag will change to reflect that, I think, yes. which is exciting. Yeah, it could be really neat. And I think, for example, like we're reaching a point where the excesses of drag are really starting to bug me. And like it, it, like it can't get any bigger. The costumes can't get more expensive or elaborate. Like it's peaked. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're going to start to see more and more a return to like the grimy the grimy roots like the bailey j mills of the world and mm. the you know the lo-fi which is i think really exciting and mm. and hopefully shakes up the foundations a bit because otherwise we start to become the the capital the the people in the capital in the hunger games mm. instead of the one the rebels i don't know and sometimes, no, sometimes no, I can right. look at like, a lineup of drag queens. I'm like, oh my god, this the the amount of privilege in this, mm. which is kind of a crazy place to come at it from from something that was previously for marginalized communities. Interesting. Really interesting. It's interesting, and it's just something. But like you know, this is exactly it. There's there's that just is and at now and. The question, I guess, the question we have to ask now as a community is like, how do we, how do we like resist? I guess as we've always resisted. Yeah, I have a lot of faith too. Like, yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's weird to think in a decade how like, but every generation of queers must have had this. They must be like just if I think of if I go from where I was to a decade before when I'm talking about I'm talking about what I'm talking about is 2022 to 2010, 12 years. If you go from 2010 to tw- 1998, that's like section 28 in gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, gay marriage was later than that. Sorry. Not that gay marriage is the key. Gay marriage was 2015 or 16, wasn't it? No, but I know what you mean. And all generations can probably relate to the idea of like my their culture being co-opted by the mainstream and, mm-hmm. you know, the push and pull of the positives and negatives of that happening. Yes. And so we, what, we live to podcast another day, my dearly. And on with your music career. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful direction to be heading in. And I'm so, I'm just so excited for your album and for people to hear the rest of your music. 
thank you. I really appreciate you having me on today. It's been so nice to chat to you. Um, your poor therapist, you're going to be, you're going to be wrung out. Maybe <laughs> I'll finally, you know, give him for some therapy. <laughs> but I'll be like, so tell me about your week. <laughs> Which I do ask him every time, but he doesn't want to tell me. <laughs> oh, you know so much about me. Tell me something about you. Come on. <laughs> he once mentioned a divorce and every session I'm like, I love it. I love it. Okay, well, before we go, can we play a quick game of But Is It Queer? Yes, please. Okay, so we're just going to throw some items back and forth and decide once and for all definitively if they are queer or not. Um, uh, let's start with a, a tricky one, I think, for both of us. Let's, let's talk about crystals. And I want to talk about... Um, the, the kind that come from the ground. No, no, not queer. <laughs> no, no. And I'm sure queer in many senses, but in the way that they have been, like, at Glastonbury, there was a, you could put money into a machine, twist, like, a gumball, <laughs> and get, like, three crystals out for, like, honestly, like, four quid. Uh -huh. And I was like, I read this thing last year, and I actually wrote about it in my book, Rose Quartz. I... If I get this wrong, it's because I've forgotten it, but it's written down in my most recent book. Rose Quartz is mined in Madagascar. I'm going to get this wrong. And I think the mining of Rose Quartz causes the death of maybe like six children, like uh, like native children a year, right? Wow. And then you have, you have people selling, like Gwyneth Paltrow selling like, you know, whatever those things are that you put over your face or like, you know, a rose quartz dildo to like, well, but, or like yeah, rose exactly. Quartz. But Tom, how can you balance six lives against like the potential internal healing that the Western world so desperately needs? It's, 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 well, a, exactly. it's, a, it's very difficult to toss up. I don't know. No, I also, <laughs> but Fucking I think, like, yeah, I don't think it's fair. I think, Fucking hell. Should, right. <laughs> so, but you know, that might not I'm be with you. every, no, right, I'm, with me. I'm fully with you. Um, I think yeah. they've peaked at any potential huh. for self-discovery or any healing properties has long since been outweighed <laughs> by the by the capitalist machine. Yes. Sad to Love. say sad to say Crystal's not queer. Not queer. Okay, have you got one for me? Oh, yes, cans of water. <laughs> hmm. Okay. So if like a plastic bottle of water is the mainstream. Then I think a can of water is like, is gay. And like a reusable water bottle is queer. Okay. <laughs> what about a glass bottle of water? I think it's in the same category as can. Like maybe, maybe a glass bottle is like, you know, the lesbians are pride and the can is the gays. <laughs> okay, interesting. Yes, I will say that a glass bottle is the most polluting of all of them. Is it? Um, yeah, shocker. It goes glass, recycle glass, plastic, recycle plastic, can. Ooh, I've got a can. The reason I asked can is I'm drinking one right now, which is. Really good. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, the glass is the most. The glass is the most polluting. Interesting. Oh, okay. So, are you saying that lesbians are pride of the most polluting? <laughs> <laughs> Depends if they're gender critical or not. Oh no, oh, no. <laughs> okay, well, that's me told. <laughs> so, does that mean cans of water are queer? No, I think none of it's queer. I uh, think tap water's queer. The rest yeah. is not queer, I would say. Although, right. I think you're probably right. Gay. Go for gay. 
you know, like a little bit problematic, but we still love him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I, you go. Let's keep on the theme of, that I started. Um, let's talk about rhinestones, the other kind of crystal. Yes. Highly polluting, but very queer. Yeah. <laughs> like a drag like, queen. Exactly. Like <laughs> glitter. Like very... Glitter isn't queer, actually. Glitter, glitter's been co-opted, but... Highly polluting, but very queer. A rhinestone. Uh-huh. Oh my god, are you kidding? Anything Dolly Parton's ever like looked at or sung about is queer. I totally agree. And I'm staring right now at a crystal on your crystal tattoo on your shoulder. So oh, you um, know that's for I do know Celine Dion. Mm. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, that's I'm nice. Obsessed. When did you get I that? Got it. I got it the first year I started calling my drag out Alter Ego Crystal. That's nice. I have one. Uh huh. Scented candles. Hmm. I don't think so. Just because they're so ubiquitous, like nothing that's that that around. I think it loses any ability to be underground. And plus, like, there are so many bad ones. I think it's too broad a category. There's potential for like an artisanal scented candle made. Like in the right place, and that can be queer, but like as a category, not queer for me. I I agree. I agree with you. I agree. Okay, one last one. Uh, Self help books. Um, you. I'm gonna want to say not queer, but I know friends who have read. It's not my genre. I don't love self help books. I do love personal and life writing memoir where someone has like a transformative story like allow me please to shout out some books that i'm please loving. travis alabanza none of the above which is mm-hmm. coming out soon um and my friend juno roche has written the most unbelievable memoir called a working class family ages badly it's so good and i think that um they're in a way self-help books they've helped me a lot to understand my experiences and the world and things like that but no, self-help books, no. Whereas I have some friends who are obsessed and, and they're very brilliant queer friends. And I couldn't say, what do you think? I think I agree with you. And maybe maybe what you've just said aligns with this is that maybe a journey of self-discovery and tackling with trauma is very queer, but doing it via the medium of self-help books isn't necessarily queer. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> yes. Obsessed. <laughs> Obsessed. Although there is, you know, that my favorite um, podcasting therapist, Esther Perel, oh yeah, always talks about how nothing's sort of inherently natural, which is very interesting. Like, you know, she always says, like, someone's like, you know, I should just be naturally good at sex. And she's like, where did you get this idea? Where did you get the idea that you should be naturally good at sex? And that's such a good point, because it's like, of course, in a relationship, for example, why should we have to have perfect chemistry that's unquestioned? Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, if I'm going to heal from trauma which, you know, and go on a closing-the-loop journey, surely I need help from people who know. Surely people who know do, not all the time, but sometimes write books about it. So maybe. Maybe. Or maybe, maybe. it's queer to just repress and use and, and use the music of Madonna as a... Oh, yeah. <laughs> as a... I thought you were going to say and use drugs, which also <laughs> is pretty too. queer as well. Yeah, yeah that too. <laughs> um, I'm obsessed. Yes, no, you're right. I think all of it. You know what? It's all queer. Oh, wow. there we go. I think that's a perfect way out. <laughs> Lol. It's what a pleasure it's been to be here. Thank, Thank you, you so much for the chat. I really appreciate all of your stories oh. and and 
insights and vulnerability and uh i'm such a fan i'm such a, oh, such I'm a, such fan. a fan of yours too i'm such a fan of yours where can people go to find you to become a fan of you gosh um on spotify or uh all my columns on us vogue are under late party or my instagram mm-hmm. which is tom glitter great um for my sins everyone should go watch the music video for fantasy island fantasy Obsession. island yeah wow yes, that's on it's fun right it's great it's thank so you. great i appreciate it. thank you so much for your time and um good luck with that therapy session thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> talk to you soon babe thank you bye bye, bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Things That Made Me Queer. I'll be back next week with more queer stuff. But before I go, Kayla or Kala on Twitter got in touch to let me know that Jennifer L's heaving bosoms and pride and prejudice from 1995 made them queer. How's that for lovely? And sounds like my washing machine's just come on, so that's probably my time to go. But thank you, Kayla, for giving me the opportunity to say heaving bosoms. See you next week. Bye.